Hey, um, I'm doing well. Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, where we talk about the contemporary scene. And man, is a contemporary scene <laughs> wild right now. Um, wild fucking times out there. This is, uh, we're going to get in today. We're going to have this, I guess, be the beginning of like, a, you know, a medium term collaboration at least. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, today we'll we'll talk about casually um, about um, the present moment, what it looks like, and Derek's right; it's not looking too great right now. Um, this is going to go up on I think both of our streams, right? We're gonna, um, yep. Do this on Mortal Science or one of your other? It'll be on uh, Barn Blog, okay, and nice. uh, which is the larger platform, and then. Um, it will go out as well uh, for Antifada patrons. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's it's been wild. You know, I, I do I keep up with economic trends because it's a habit I've gotten into. It's the kind of left thinking that uh, I first got into. I was never, you know, you you may know this about me. Your audience probably doesn't. I did not start out as a, as like some kind of left liberal. So you were a paleo conservative, right? I was a paleo conservative. And um, while it was cultural stuff, it got me out of paleo conservatism. The only thing that made the left attractive was materialist analysis, because everything else that I dealt with about the left felt very debutante for, for lack of a better phrase. No, no, that sounds about right. Um, very small bore too. I feel like, um, I think you and I might have talked about this on the epic two and a half hour stream we did a couple of weeks ago, where mm-hmm. we pretty much like covered everything. We were touched on everything that could possibly be touched on. Uh, really, really good and the inspiration for this too. But like, yeah, for me, getting involved in um in, in a serious way in politics and analysis only came from uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis or the Great Recession, because finally something broke through the sort of, I guess, capitalist realism you know of um of the 1990s and 2000s and the only way i stay sane is through economic analysis is is through um understanding class understanding class composition um looking at the the global economy trying to understand these trends because otherwise there's so much noise in the background uh and as you say the left is so um so so backbiting and so kind of small bore about cultural issues and electoral issues and stuff like that. It's really disheartening unless you have some sort of grounding, you know. Yeah, and and honestly, their their understanding of geo, geopolitics also. I mean, if I was to generalize, I would say delusional. Um, <laughs> and the reason why I would say that is because not even because like the left is wrong about this or that country, although they often are, it's more a diehard dedication, which I seriously think comes out of nostalgia uh, for cold war times that they did, that most of the left being that they're younger than me didn't live through. Right. Um, where you have a moral clarity by inverting whatever the bad imperialist is doing. And I can tell you, the bad imperialist is as bad as they say, uh, in some ways actually worse, but the other situations and powers are almost never as simple or as easy or as left wing 
as they're often being portrayed. And I wanted to bring that up because the one of the global economic indicators right now is that if you were listening to discussions about China, if you're listening to it coming out of the developing world, you hear a lot of talk of China's economy crashing. If you hear it from the developed world, particularly the West, um, maybe a little bit Japan, you hear about how China's got a super economy. Right. Now, the, the raw data is that China's economy is fared COVID better than any other major economy, but that the business cycles have kicked in. Mm-hmm. Um, GDP is averaging around 6%. Uh, Very respectable if you're in the United States. We haven't hit that in decades, but given the double-digit growth rates that for decades at this point might um, fallen off a lot. Yeah, they started falling around 2014. Um, that's probably some of what's prompting the Red New Deal talk. Uh, and why I bring this up is that However bad we feel like things are in the United States, outside of Europe um, and China and, you know, the, uh, the various, um, you know, the, the G8, G12, G20 countries, things are about to get really bad. Um, the uh... forum for, for Chinese, African... Uh, what is it the Forum for Chinese African Cooper, uh, uh, Cooperation? Um, saw a mutual, and I did a whole podcast on this, but so a mutual decline in China. China's putting up uh, $40 billion in investment loans, something that, that people who listen to you need to know. China doesn't ever let small countries discharge those loans, mm-hmm. they will. They will d- defer payments. They'll have long grace periods. They'll keep the interest low compared to Western loans, but they do not discharge them ever. Um, I got in big trouble the other day uh, for posting a partially erroneous article about um, a Ugandan airport deal under the um, uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative, where you had. Um, yeah, the, the sort of arrangement that you're talking about collateralized through the revenue of the international airport down there. And, um, you know, basically the article was erroneous in that it said, like, China had seized the airport. But it's certainly true that these uh, this surplus capital that's being lent out to African and other developing countries, even more so Central America now, as, as many uh, countries like Honduras try to find alternate forms of international funds, um, more and more, it's looking like a debt trap situation, or or at least um, it's looking as though there's a, a sort of a minor imperial process going on underneath the sort of uh, very clear major one. Yeah, Eric Olander says that China is actually not that interested in debt traps, but that the developing world has a major revenue problem. What that is, which depending on how you spin it, right, a debt problem and a revenue problem, like it. it like in some ways, all debt problems are revenue problems. Um, but that in many of the cases, what that's leading to is also the African nations themselves are asking for less um, loans from China. Mm. They also do not want, by and large, a lot of developmental aid from the United States because it comes with tons of strings and 
the paternalism of Europe and the U.S. is strongly associated with it being a backdoor for imperialism, even if we are more likely to forgive certain small amounts of the loan sometimes. Sure. Um, and China doesn't go in as much for uh, structural adjustment, right? No, no, not at it's all. It's a big deal for considering the, the literal debt traps of the 1990s that blew up in uh, developing countries' face from IMF. And, you, you know, you and me are veterans of the 90s left, so we all remember uh, that right. uh, that period where basically um, what was left of, uh, was it called uh, industry, import, in, um, import, ISI, import substitution, industrialization, whatever was left of that was, was decimated through, um, you know, good faith um, uh, trade deals or, or at least uh, uh, credit deals uh, with international institutions. So. So what we're going to see probably is the developing world take a lot less, not just aid, but money in general. Um, I will say this, and uh, uh, if you if you want to know my sources for a lot of this, I am a, a fan for the China and Africa Project, which is by Eric Olander, which is not take a pro or anti-China line. Um, it, it, it was actually quite interesting uh, when I did an interview with with Eric Olander, one of their two major uh, editors over there, um, that he had trouble like addressing a lot of the left frameworks. And he's like, well, mm. it's not really good or bad on the grand scheme of things. This is how the, the, the countries do business. If you accept that China's not a particularly bad actor, but it's not a, it's not a solely benevolent actor right. either. It's, it is somewhere in between um, because that surplus capital has to go somewhere. Bingo. And, the, and, and that, you know, uh, that was made explicit at first. It was surplus labor. However, that is no longer the case. They are actually using a lot of uh, local labor. However, they're not really skilling that labor because the, the both from the African side in particular and from the Chinese side, there's this need to get infrastructure up in Africa fast. And one of the problems that we have, liberals like bureaucracy and whether or not conservatives hate it or not, we haven't, we are more likely to require like environmental reviews and this, that, and the other for quick, uh, for response time that can tie up five, six years before you can even uh, shovel hit ground um, in the developing world. Uh, you can feel how you want to feel about that. But that means that also just in terms of time, uh, a lot of these developing countries are going to reach out to China. Now, um, soft power wise, I think is interesting. And we can get back to the internal economics of the United States. But China has replaced uh, the U.S. as the soft cultural export power, although the U.S. still has... Um, for liberals, it would be shocking how low the reputation is. But for me, I was actually surprised how how, it, how high it still was that China and the U.S. are seen as on equal footing. But with China having uh, a bigger hold on the future. Mm. Now, I say all this because there there is a sense in which the West is is portraying China as this major imperial threat. It isn't. It is not not an imperial power. <laughs> um, but it 
it's having its own internal problems. And one of the things is the opacity of the Chinese state uh, because of the way their Communist Party is set up and the way like various oppositions, uh, you know, are set up within local municipalities in China, etc. The political debates in China are opaque to us, but they are very, very real. And and even, say, expatriate scholars have little incentive, if we are honest, because they could lose their visa to go to China to study, or they could get themselves in a politically precarious situation, to completely go into the internal machinations of the the CPC. Um, which is very decentralized to begin with. Right. Which, which means that for the American left, they can project whatever the hell they want to right. on that because they don't understand the, the internal debates going on within there. I mean, there are neo-Maoists around uh, Xi. There are people that would be the equivalent of Alan Broom, uh, cultural conservatives with some, you know, socialist, you know, Confucian uh, values in there. And there's still, there is still probably, it's it's no longer as big as it was under Xi Jinping or even maybe under the beginnings of Hu Jintao, but there's still a capitalist component explicitly mm. in the CCP itself. Um, we just had uh, Chuang on our podcast. Um, if anybody hasn't listened to that, I know, don't know why you haven't. Oh, I guess uh, for the Varn vlog people, if you haven't listened to it, we had Chuang on and, and one thing that they're trying to do as like a, a communist research project, essentially inside and outside China is trying to do this sort of research and analysis on what China is, uh, what the policy debates are in China right now, what the ways in which uh, the, the communist party of China is able to, uh, on the one hand, suppress, but also to co-opt various different uh, social movements that exist on the ground. And then importantly, too, uh, because this is adding to your point, right, when when people from America or people from the West uh, want to project things onto China, there is a, uh, a several hundreds million uh, Chinese working class yeah. that, that always gets that, that either gets um, uh, in a nor- very Orientalist way, either gets dismissed as though they're all collectivist Confucian drones. Uh, if you're on the right, uh, they need to be freed by, I guess, American military power in order to, to like do American style democracy. Or oftentimes, if you're on the left end of the spectrum, the Chinese working class, uh, there, there's a one to one sort of identification made between what that working class wants, what that working class fights for, uh, what the working class's uh, conditions are with the party state itself, which right. is a very, very blinkered way for communists of any stripe to look at it. That doesn't, doesn't mean that that presumes that you're going to come down on one side or the other about whether to support, support President Xi's uh, politics and reform in the state of China. But it does mean that, and I'm agreeing with you, that that our, our studied ignorance of what's happening outside the United States and especially in China leads to a situation of nostalgia, like you said, but also one of um, deferring the sort of important organizational and political questions that exist here with our own working class in this very in this in this very moment uh, to some sort of golden, uh, I don't know, um, LARPing sort of um, identification of China with with the future of socialism. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to Kaiser Gua of uh, the Seneca podcast, and he's from China. He he for a long time was a dual uh, a citizen of both the United States and China. Um, he's, he's a, 
he's a left liberal. He's not like a radical socialist by any stretch of the imagination, but he he's he's let me know his wife was was actually a Jewish man until very recently. Mm. Um so we're not talking about hostile American liberals or Falun Gong supporters or people who are like work for the South China Post or whatever. Um he was telling me that uh that we have to understand Chinese labor politics is complicated, but that there's more radical labor actions in China than there is in the United States. And then I pointed out to him and he laughed at it that American leftists are often less willing to admit the labor issues in China, which the Chinese state hasn't, has been a participant in and which the all China union, which is the only officially allowed union, the all China labor union, one big yellow union. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Does not participate in. So there's a lot of push and pull with the government doing recognizing labor actions and ameliorating them, but making sure never to recognize like unions outside of the outside of the the all China labor union, um, which is probably not the best translation for what that is in Mandarin, but whatever it's uh, and that that there's no militancy in the in the. Uh, in the state-run union, and it's all outside of it. Um, and, and this is not from someone who you'd hear at, at Swang, although Swang's story actually is largely copacetic with that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what I find interesting is in the Chinese press, there is some real dealings with this, particularly in the tensions between Xi and certain factions of the neo-Maoists who'd warmed up to Xi. Um we have to remember that the neo-Maoists in China were first opposed to Xi because they were largely sympathetic to Bo Lai's reforms. And when Bo Lai was more or less purged in an early kind of consolidation of power, but there was real corruption involved, apparently, mm. um, that it was not clear that the neo-Maoist contingency was going to warm up to the current government. And it had not been warm to the Hu Jintao government. But it's also, and this is something that Swang has pointed out, uh, Xi has not even delivered on the reforms promised by Hu Jintao, and they're just beginning to in this current Red New Deal. And that was supposed to happen years ago under the the CCP's plans. I, I say that also uh, because this needs to be taken in the context of no matter what you think China is or wants to be, um, you know, is it is it capitalist but trying to really become socialist is it is it is it truly capitalist is it i'm not actually i actually am interested in those questions but i'm not interested in it right now Mm -hmm. um you have to admit that the chinese way of building socialism to avoid some of the problems of autarky that happened in the soviet union particularly early on has been to attract foreign investors whether or not one day they're going to cut it off is a different question right um and it still is. So while we can talk about them occasionally, I don't know, making Jack Ma disappear and like <laughs> slapping around Weibo, um, which, man, we would love a lot of leftists would love if we could slap around Facebook. Right. But I mean, but, uh, um, 
the China's not only in a sort of like different phase of capitalist development than the United States, uh, if you want to look at it purely schematically in a phase that the United States went through, I guess, in our Gilded Age. Uh, it's Britain a went mixture of Gilded that. Age. So what, what's interesting but is- But it's also look- combined an uneven development too, because right. China then has leapfrogged over. So in some sense, it's like a, it's a return to a phase of development. But in another more important sense, it's happening in like this globalized atmosphere where it's impossible to kind of pull China away from the developments of the rest of capitalism. And it's also happening under very, very unique Chinese conditions, just as this happened in very, very unique American conditions, German conditions. Well, I mean, if you want to go back historically, you see the same thing in the USSR, where it, and you will hear Marxist Leninists, we'll call them by what they want to be called, but they're mostly Stalinist, um, who will trot out the economic growth rates during the 30s which were which were astronomical they were mm. 20 30 uh, 20 growth rates while the, the rest of the world was seeing massive declines during the great depression yep. um what they don't talk about in that is that it was still highly uneven development and that the according to the ussr's own records the average caloric allowment for for rations during that period was down to like 12 to 1300 calories a day, which you can't survive off of, right. but is suboptimal to say the least. It's it, it, it over a prolonged period of time would lead to serious health issues. Um, every I, period, every period of national industrialization uh, looks like this, the sort of uh, social chaos, um, immiseration and death that you saw again uh, in the USSR. And you know, more recently in China, it's actually been more bloodless actually in China, but it has mean, meant the uh, the movement of hundreds of millions of Chinese off of the farms and into the factories. The uh, Hoku system, which is vastly unequal in terms of what sort of social benefits get. China actually, I think, comparatively has done a, a pretty good job of a sort of bloodless industrial revolution. But whether it's the Soviet Union or it's the United States, you have these periods of like intense intense immiseration that arise whenever you get up to the point where then you have a a mature industrialized society. And so China's getting to that point right now, just as the USSR got to that point in what, the 1970s, you would say, 60s, 70s. But what my point is, what you see in this combined, if you think about our Gilded Age, the other thing that China's current right now rhymes with is the end of the post-war social compact of the 60s, because we were also going gangbusters with our Keynesian internationalism and massive extraction from the global South at the same time, you know, in the, in the late fifties, early Mm sixties, but it, it is soon as they needed to start recoup capital and, and, and uh, start and, and stop the high marginal tax rates, which, which by the way, I know liberals have some weird nostalgia for this idea that somehow that the world could sustain marginal tax rates of like 80% forever and capitalism right. still work. Um, <laughs> that, that there was, there, there was pressures in the early sixties for something. We can't call it neoliberalism because it wasn't a neoliberalism, neoliberal ideology wasn't developed yet, but it was a push against the government element of the post-war social compact. And so I'm interested in what we're going to see in China because Mm. they are not doing that, but it Mm. looks like they're just kind of aiming at like, uh, moderately prosperous society. (laughs) Yeah. But in a way that actually resembles more like the great society of the United States Hmm. without the, without the imperial interconflict. Hmm. Um, If you look at like the reforms in the, 
and the Red New Deal, they're not particularly socialistically ambitious. They're just socialist at all. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, some people might push back at me, but it's like it's 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 aimed at getting rid of the extreme rural poverty, which they have kind of been successful at. But when we say extreme rural poverty, like we're talking about conditions that exist in like Central America that that the that the internal passport system kind of allowed to go on in China, mm-hmm. particularly in Western China for a long time um, because of fear of develop a massive lump and proletarian in the, in these massive cities. And they did not want that. Um, so very successful campaign of uh, proletarianization. Yeah. And all um, the attendant effects that come from that. And, and let's, let's, let's be honest. I think what we see in the Western provinces um, with uh, the Uyghurs and other Muslim minority groups is, is, is also, similar to that capitalist nation building project uh technically by the un definition it could be seen as a cultural genocide i actually think the un definition is stupid and i've never supported it but but i like when people say that game play the game with that yeah it's technically cultural genocide um but that makes it sound like i'm playing it down i just I think there's a lot of Western propaganda around it, but I also think there's a ton of counter propaganda that doesn't look at what it's aiming to do, which is to force um, people, some of whom do have extremist uh, ideational tendencies, because you see this in, in the development of Africa and Western Asia as well um, into uh, modern modern quasi-capitalist life and they don't really want to do it mm-hmm. and the only way to do that is is kind of like our residential schools that is that is the the clearest um you know uh analogy for what's going on and if on you know when china pushes pushes back and will admit anything's going on there they'll underplay some a lot of it but they will just say like you know look you, you look at what you did to the native americans shut up of course yeah um i mean and, hitler could say that too to us to be honest right i mean and did but actually <laughs> even though he totally bases policies so oh, yeah. the, the 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 irony of this uh, my one point this long digression on china is china's going to be the rising power of the next century but mm. i don't think it's going to be as powerful are able to assume the same conditions that the United States, the, the, the United States as a super hegemon really does emerge out of this weird historical condition that it's hard to imagine happening yeah. a lot. It, I can't think of many times it's happened ever where you have a major geographic power enters a major war, but loses none of its, its internal infrastructure is able to rebuild the other old capitalist countries without resentment. So it um, so it ties them to this transatlantic polity, but the, but it doesn't look like traditional imperialism because Europe's getting a good deal and they're getting a, right. almost an equal seat at the table. And also the United States, of course, for um, Cold War ideological reasons and self-interest in order to try to replace Great Britain as the former hegemon, actually supports in many cases decolonization movements. Right. <laughs> when it, when it's in the, the United States' interests, of course. I mean, even that's even true back to Monroe Doctrine times. Like, you know, we're taking half of Mexico one minute and then we're helping Benito Juarez reassume... 
um, the presidency against the French, you know, the the Habsburg emperor, um, the next, because because decolonization, as long as it leaves those smaller countries dependent on us as an and imperial within, power, has always within been, the market in our sphere. Yeah, exactly. Right in our sphere has always been allowed under the Monroe Doctrine, which is why, like, calling isolationism, I agree with Danny Bessner in this. Isolationist is kind of a bullshit idea because um, we were isolationist in so much that, like, leave us alone. Yeah, we'll let Canada develop because they were part of the UK and we can't really tell them to piss off. But um, but uh, Latin America is ours and we're going to extract from it what we want to screw off. Yes, we will technically support independent governments there. Um, and yes, we will fight off the Europeans if they try to come back. Right. But, but it has to be a, a completely contained ruling class right? Um, without the, the threat of land reform or without the threat of expropriation of American capital or even indigenous capital at that point. Right. I think you're so. So I think you're you're touching on something that's really important when we think about right now, because I can. All right. So China has arisen as a world power with um, a separate say what you want about it, but um, a different form or at least a different tenor of um developmentalism mm -hmm. and um ability to kind of cohere uh maybe not half the planet but like <clears throat> portions of the planet underdeveloped parts of the planet um to cohere something like a soft imperial relation uh relationship with them but the but <clears throat> i don't see any way in which china would be able to cohere like an, an international world system than that like the united states on top of all the other uh, factors you were talking about the the lack of destruction of um, of uh, productive capacity and the ability to pull in large swaths of the capitalist world under the orbit relatively peacefully. Um, the other thing is that the United States had a not just for ideological but for historical reasons had an extremely forward looking ruling class at that point in time, a ruling class that had seen <clears throat> the um, you know seen the rise and fall of the of the of the British Empire. And was able to formulate uh, a series of policies that would enable a capital, like a relatively peaceful capitalist hegemony, pulling other countries into the orbit. The Chinese ruling class doesn't seem to have that as a priority, doesn't seem to want to cohere a world system underneath it. And also the the transition from one to another would necess is necessarily, and we're seeing it right now, is necessarily an antagonistic one. Uh, and this is what, what really scares me is because, you know, the United States uh, is not going to go gently into that good night. And we're seeing all the sorts of geopolitical ramifications of this rise in China. The, I, think, I think you're right to point to the, um, the contradictions rising within the Chinese um, capitalist economy right now. Um, so I think that what we're left with is a period of disorder. Mm. A period of multipolarity for a bit, and then certainly one in which uh, you have, again, like a great power rivalry that arose like in the 20th century. And it's very frightening because there's no real, um, doesn't seem to me like um, there's any real attempt on the part of um, our respective ruling classes to try to find some sort of detente, uh, especially when you're looking at Taiwan and and all that right well when you really think about it right now you have three military powers and a couple of economic powers so the military powers are going to be china uh russia to some degree france 
as an independent military power within within uh, the EU, the EU itself, and of course the the, the mega hegemon, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I find concerning but fascinating is that despite the fact that Joe Biden is actually t- is actually uh, doing Hadrian and Trajan style limiting of empires, so there there is a real sense that we are finally not on the outward march and we're not going mm-hmm. to be and the military printers do not want us to be mm-hmm. um despite what the hawkish elements of the democratic coalition may want even um and despite what parts of the military uh punditry class more than the military itself says um that there's a real sense that like look at biden's drone strikes they've dropped dramatically mm-hmm. under from trump's um, and yet, there's also a sense in which the Democrats are clamoring to give more of the gross national product uh, to the military right now. Mm. They actually gave $25 billion more than was asked for to the military, and a significant number of them... We're able to pair with a significant number of Republicans with basically the progressives and some paleoconservative isolationists on the other side uh, pulling out of this uh, and in some ways to protect their probably to protect their own votes with constituency. It couldn't even stand up to like the war in Yemen. Right. Right. So uh, we have this clear internal sense in which. There's something going on, and people will say, oh, it's political inertia. I, nothing is ever that simple. Political inertia mm-hmm. exists for a reason. Um, the re, like, there's, there's something about our economy that, that people miss this. They think, oh, we could take the military budget and just give it to social welfare programs. And we probably yeah. could give a lot of it to it. Sure. But there's it's, a, it's three quarters of a trillion dollars. There's a lot to go around. Right. <laughs> but, but all that aside... Some of our economic, a lot of our economic power um, in a post-commodity money world is based on the military. That is Military that is, transfers, yeah. Yeah, that is why we are still the reserve currency for oil. Otherwise, we probably would have lost to the to the renminbi already i mean yes there there are also internal concerns about china's currency because it is not allowed to be valued uh, on market value and so it's not free floating and even even mmtiers complain about that mm-hmm. but um if for those you know that's modern monetary theory uh but it is it, you could see it china's a stable enough power particularly after covid that if I was an investor, I'd be like, well, you know, the remedy is maybe not too bad, but I still need to purchase all this stuff from the U.S. military yes. explicitly. Yep. So our, there's a way in which people aren't looking at the fact that our whole economy is still tied up in the military in a very real way. Yeah. That even though our empire and we've hit imperial limits, I don't like... I see this whole retrenchment with China as potentially world destroying, but I will also say I don't think either side really thinks the other is going to bite the bullet in a way that's going to force a war, right. and that's why they're not like backing down on Taiwan. 
it's kind of almost more dangerous than the Cold War with mutually assured destruction because that the it was very clear at that point in time what a war between the great powers meant. In this instance, could we stumble and trip our way into World War Three? We could. It's unlikely. It's unlikely. Nobody it's wants unlikely, that. But but but. We have Ukraine and Taiwan happening now at the same time, and you have the war hawks on both sides. Uh, you have the liberal, I mean, God, so much of the discourse about Taiwan is these sort of uh, liberal interventionist um, uh, international world order uh, dead enders who, because the other part of the Biden project is to try to reimpose American soft power to use uh, bilateral treaties uh, and also to use treaty organizations in order to regain some of the prestige and some of the ability to act, um, you know, act upon the world that's been lost, not since obviously even Trump, but uh, from the debacle of the Iraq and Afghan wars before that. So, but even that, when we're talking about uh, the ruling but classes. But Transit and Huawei phones have made that an irrelevant, like, I mean, like in a very real sense, actually, the Chinese have beat us at our own game, except it's not genes. It's 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 decent, cheap electronics, which are made in mass scale and delivered to Africa. What United States like people were talking about. We just don't have a lot other than our military. We actually don't have a lot of stake uh, economically at Africa at all. We're not even that invested in Africa as economic imperialists. Well, and so, this is, this is what, this is what ties in the, um, the new cold war rhetoric that we're seeing with the, the very, I think limited, but real vision of, a, of the American ruling class, obviously both Democrat and Republican and people in uh, think tanks or whatever, uh, the, the serious plan uh, right now, you saw this under Trump with the tariffs and the, the talk about keep America first and keeping industry in the United States. And you see that the the Biden Cold War rhetoric is very much tied into renationalization of industry, because you saw obviously what happened under COVID with this sort of with the supply chain breakdowns and also the real fears that we so much of our productive capacity, so much of our American ability to make stuff has been obviously outsourced to elsewhere in the world. That the new Cold War rhetoric matches perfectly with a, a government uh, policy of at least limited renationalization of American industry. Right. The, and the, the, the military is part of that. But also, too, you're seeing um, in just the next year or two, you're seeing almost $100 billion uh, between Intel, Intel and Samsung and one other smaller producer, $100 billion of uh, investment in microprocessing plants in the United States, in uh, Texas and uh, New Mexico, I think it is, uh, because of this real panic, this real fear of what happens if Chimerica were to break down, what happens if these continuing um, supply chain disasters, which, by the way, are very much tied into global warming. Uh, because you saw the three great, you had three disasters in the course of one year. You had a fire, a flood, and a storm that knocked out uh, microprocessing um, all within one year. You're starting to see like this return, uh, this this attempted return to to a national industrial policy. But even I was looking at this too, despite that headline number of a hundred billion dollar investment in these giant new fab plants, you know, in the Sun Belt of the United States. Something like four or five thousand jobs. <laughs> right. I mean they, jobs. <laughs> Aaron Aaron Benita's work is pretty clear on this. That kind of production does not provide the same kind of we've been reshoring plants for a decade. Like steel steel production came back to the United States at the end of the aughts. Like um because the cost of labor in China 
has gone up dramatically. Yes, that's a huge, 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 huge shift. You now have something that approximates a, uh, a Chinese middle class. You don't have um, newly proletarianized, immiserated uh, workers anymore pouring into the plants. You have the reasonable expectations of, a, of the Chinese working class that they should have a living that approximates, you know, right. the, 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 the 1960s in the United States. And, and the parts of Mexico, for example, that are not torn up by our drug policies also have seen a rising cost of labor in something like a Mexican middle class. I mean, I saw it when I lived there. Like there was the beginnings of a Mexican middle class with consumer power. Now I also saw that that poverty there was still extreme. Yeah. But but to even think of a country like Mexico as third world in the way that you could talk about it in like say the 1970s is completely false. Yeah. And you have to remember the way one of the things that um uh my Chinese and African friends have reminded me the reason why China has so much pull in Africa. Yes. There's the whole Angola thing from the seventies where there was actual troop help, but most of what it has to do with actually has nothing to do with Mao and everything to do with the post dung economic miracle, Mm -hmm. because China in the seventies, like, like South Korea in the seventies was poorer than African nations because we were trying to keep them that way. And um, I mean, that was explicit U.S. doctrine in the early 50s. You can read um, uh, early OSS doctrines about trying to keep Asia. So they were able to, despite U.S. interference, um, to become more prosperous in a way that, say, India, for example, which has just as many... uh, I mean, India's investment was all into education, mm. which has led to like the domination of say like increasing representation in tech and banking firms of say individual Indians. But that has not at all flowed back into the larger society in the same way. In- right. India's developmental patterns had not done what China's has done. Well, and you just have the uh, the heroic victory of the of the Indian peasants in trying shooting down Modi's um, modernizing reforms, which were right. essentially going to throw them into the chaos of the free market and something like 300 million people be proletarianized in a way that you saw like China. Right. Uh, but that was a victory against that. Well, it's interesting because... Africa's population is about the same population as China. Right. And if you look about if you look at the trends of global capitalism back to the 1970s uh, and you look at the globalization of production, uh, it seems like this vast proletarianization of uh, of Chinese people uh, from agricultural workers on uh, communes uh, into the factories is something that happens in in one nation state it's this 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 incredible like free gift to the to the capitalist world economy of all these workers flooding into to value production africa has the, the same amount of people but it's obviously not centralized it's a continent not a uh, not a country so to get the same sort of kick that the global capitalist economy got just to get the same kind of uh, rise uh, growth rates that we saw over the last 30 years um by um, pulling, say, African, wh- whoever's left out there to be proletarianized, pulling Africans in to do the same trick that uh, China did over the last 30 years <clears throat> seems impossible to me. I don't think yeah. the, the the world economy, the capitalist economy is going to be able to get a kick like we had in the last 30 years. And the maturation of Chinese capitalism, if you want to call it that, um, means that where's the reservoir of 20% growth coming from now? Where is it going to come from? 
Nowhere. Right. Nowhere. And I that's mean, a and huge the, problem. And the other <laughs> thing is where market's going to expand, which I've been pointing out, like there's more and more pushback on this is This is wild to me because when I say declining rates of profits, what I do not mean is that there is less physical currency in the world and less billionaires. Right. What I mean is there's less incentive to invest. There's less profits made per item sold, which is an objective fact, even during this period of high inflation. Yes. Um, and, like I can go through industry after industry and, and like inflation address product after product and go, they used to make more money off this. Um, uh, what that actually, ironically, what it leads to, what it seems to lead to from empirical studies is, is capitalist wealth hoarding, but rent seeking behaviors yeah. out the wazoo. Yep. And so uh, to turn it back to our own economy, yeah, I, you and I've been talking about and floating and I have another guest coming on who's, who feels the same way on bomb blog, uh, Stephen Hamill from, the. Uh, the measures taken podcast, we all kind of feel like neoliberalism is like dead. It doesn't realize it's dead. So we still have neoliberal habits everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're not doing neoliberals, but like basically the economy in the U S got out of the 2008 recession, not by, not by forced markets or market profitability, like it did in the eighties. It got out of it just by pumping liquidity yeah. into the market and floating the stock exchange. Um, we it was asset price Keynesianism. We haven't seen a, a huge burst in productivity in the United States since a short period of the 1990s, where you've seen so much of the growth is, is in um, low productivity industries, especially service and retail, uh, and also rises in employment in those as well. Um, and of course, too, in speculation, as you say. Um, pumped up by trillions of trillions of dollars of liquidity. And so a very bizarre, the discourse about the economy is very, very, very bizarre because you look at all these indicators that you're talking about, especially pro profit rates. And then you look at that next to the valuations of uh, major tech companies. You look at all the, the froth in uh, real estate still. I mean, real estate in the United States is go has been going up in a very, except for the 2008, 2009, for decades now. Real estate right. prices have been going up with all the knock-on effects, of course, that means for homeowners and, and for big landlords and shit like that. Like, what does Which it also mean? How, what happened, like, there's a whole generation in China of workers who were able to buy their homes in the 90s, and the same thing happened, where they're all, they're all wealth-rich but income-poor. And since um, China puts its own hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars equivalent uh, into its own economy in order to juice it at that time, you're now starting to see... Uh, a, a housing crisis, a real estate crisis in China that looks very similar to 2008, 2009. And the way that China does that, as the United States did, is to try to muddle through, is to try to prop up the particular institutions that are involved, like Evergrande, for example, which is uh, obviously like the largest property development developer in China, which people who have watched the news for the last six months has yeah, been on the very edge of default. Me has been telling me that oh china's gonna let it default china it's become very clear that they're not no. gonna let it default they're right? not gonna let it they're gonna muddle through they're gonna um i don't know uh i i had um i had people telling me that the Evergrande situation was and this is semi-conspiratorial was actually a plan 
when they put the what is it the four red lines in mm -hmm. uh in order to try to decrease speculation that everything's going to plan in, in terms of Evergrande and it's going to be like a mass nationalization and you're going to see like a neo-maoist solution to the housing shit more likely is that uh you know the chinese cap the chinese ruling class similar to the american ruling class is again trying to muddle through they're trying to retain the same sort of institutions and powers that existed pre-crisis and there's they're going to simply pump up and keep inflating uh and bailing out until i don't know what comes can you do that forever i don't think you could do that i mean forever, no i don't but... think so either i mean so let's talk let's like this is this is where I'm going to like take a double stance. One, I agree with with the statement made by Marx that there is no such thing as a final crisis. Two, yep. that doesn't mean there aren't breakdown tendencies within capitalism. Yep. And breakdown tendencies are larger than the business cycle. Um, the the issue is we can get into this whole right now, and this worries me because we've seen it on the right in the. With the secularization of traditional Christianity, people are going to be wild that I'm bringing this up. What we've seen fill in the gap on the right is conspiracy theories coming out of a Gen X, actually, and I am, it is kind of generationally specific, cons mm. a political conspiracy culture that turned political in the last 20 years. Yes, yes, there's always been a huge right-wing component of, 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 uh, of conspiracy culture, but the reason why you're boomer grandma and your gen x uncle your older gen x uncle have no problem glomming onto the absurdities of QAnon. go back and watch unsolved mysteries in the 80s and 90s and tell me that they weren't <laughs> or the x files yeah. right that they weren't prepped for that of course by people who did not think they were doing politics at all <laughs> um uh and probably didn't think anyone was taking any of that seriously but you have that as a cultural feedback. This is why I think, you know, I, I think the economics ultimate, ultimately predominates. But when people try to say that culture doesn't matter at all, I just don't buy that. Oh, um, yeah. And it's not even like there's uh, some sort of easy schematic based superstructure. There's obviously all sorts of, um, you know, feedback loops between them. I wanted to get into culture because I think you and I touched on this last time. We don't have to do a hard exit out of like the grand uh, world political economy stuff. But just maybe as a side note, um, the cult. So part of this massive shift in um, uh, in where assets, where value, where um, investment is going into society has obviously been towards tech. And on top of all the other trends that we've been talking about, tech has has literally colonized social life, colonized right. the culture, commodified it, if you will, uh, to the point where we don't we're not. People want to talk about a neo-feudal. They want to talk about like some uniquely tech capitalism or whatever. But there's been alongside these massive um, waves of accumulation of productive capital, there's also been a sort of um, real subsumption of social and cultural life into a new sort of technological um, tech technology, essentially, uh, that exists. And what that has done to our culture and to our society um, has been... In, insane to me like i i have to stop sometimes and think about what was what life was like 20 25 years ago uh just to get my head around uh the enemy and the alienation and um this tendency towards bizarre flights of fantasy like like conspiracy theories that that that, that arises today human beings have never lived like this before and it comes exactly out of the fact that 
you know, capital has to colonize uh, these parts of culture and social reproduction uh, in order to like further implicate itself and further subjectivize people into this rotten social order. Well, I mean, it's also, I mean, and why would it have to do that? This does directly tie into our economic concessions is because it's seeking rents through advertising. Yeah. And it that's all it is. That. Yep. And the advertising, the advertising rents, when you really think about it, is actually increasingly for other kinds of media. So it's this weird cyclic suck. And we have been dominated by media for the entirety of the 20th century. There's almost no one alive now who hasn't been. Um, but let's let, let's put it in perspective. In the 1990s, that media was passive. And in fact, if you go back and read, like people talk about, oh, the relevance of Society of the Spectacle or the relevance of Marshall McLuhan, they actually assume a passive media consumption. Hmm. They do not assume that identity formation is going to be like, oh, it's eating up the social sphere. Oh, yeah, but but it's still passive and thus active engagement when people still happen in the social sphere. We didn't think about it getting by the, the being active in a way that even literally changes our hormone responses and thus our neurochemistry, which it does. It, it, it like dopamine addiction. I know these are all liberal talking points, but I'm a teacher. I can tell you um, that anxiety and depression has skyrocketed. And at first, when I used to say this uh, six, seven years ago, it was actually leftists and liberals who pushed back on me saying I was just being an old boomer. Now they all agree with me. Because um, I'm like, no, the, the, it's not even intentional. This is not a capitalist conspiracy, but like, like the blue light does damage to your ability to focus. It It, it literally damages your executive function. The the mediation through uh, texting and whatnot lowers your ability to read people's emotions. And because of that increases more anxiety because you can't read people in person if they're not telling you something explicitly. Thus, you don't know what to look for. And thus, increasingly, you see social anxiety increasing uh, beneath kids. This is, and also, frankly, adults. Then you, and you know what? The the people that's affected the worst is actually not the people we thought. We didn't think, okay, so the lost generation didn't really get online. Mm -hmm. So we thought the boomers wouldn't, and we were wrong. Oh my God, yeah. And for for a certain generation, a Zoomer or like an early millennial, it's sort of like um, there was never a time before. Uh, but for boomers who had the same sort of media consumption habits that they had, they garnered in the 1950s and 60s and 70s to be thrown into this this new social world, this brave new world of uh, social media has had a tremendous effect, not just on them, but of course, on the culture and politics of the country. Like when we talk about we were talking about the um, I don't want to say death of neoliberalism, but just say the exhaustion of the mm-hmm. neoliberal regime of accumulation or project. No, however you want to put it one thing it has it's in the process i think maybe of changing but the sort of subjectivities produced by within the neoliberal era um people are having a hard time shaking those and in fact i feel like this exact process that you're talking has supercharged the sort of methodological individualism and the sort of like um consumer choice um conception of politics and, and society that had already existed in the by the time the 80s, 90s, and 2000s come, but have now supercharged it. 
because everybody's got their opinion. Everybody is resolved at the end of the day down to either their ability or what, what they choose to consume or uh, the, their opinion. Yeah, I mean, so one of the, one of the ironies of uh, all this is, um, you know, I've been talking about secularization and, and stuff a lot. And I no longer see these as separate things like secularization and the Internet are directly related. Ironically, J.D. Vance, who, a person who I do not love, don't get me wrong when I bring him up, but I, I, he made an observation that I had made that I was like, well, all, I know all these like, you know, uh, petty bourgeois and kind of reactionary workers in the South who all claim to be religious. They never, but they never go to church. And frankly, it's because they're addicted to porn. And, um, JG Vance made that, 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 uh, uh, association. I know a lot of leftists got all mad and indignant about, you know, disparaging the working class, but I, I, I do think we have to be honest about where the working class is at because, yeah. um, particularly in, in the Gen X generation, they've never, uh, and when people talk, well, why are you talking about generational cohorts? Obviously there's some artificialness to this, but I also like to remind people age is a material condition. Exactly. These are the conditions under which you were arose and under which you act. Right. So, so if you look at Gen Xers, the nineties boom was one of the, was the first hint of what we were going to get in the late aughts where you had, uh, something looked like it was going to be a depression or a major recession. It didn't end up being, but everybody, even though society somehow net got richer and we now think of it as like boom times, most people's income went down when you adjusted for inflation or at least stagnated. And what actually was a few, was fueling consumption during that time period was personal debt. Uh, mm. Actually, mostly off of like refinancing home loans and whatnot. Uh, which is why also Gen Xers were disproportionately hit in the 2007 downturn, not because they bought their houses just then, but because they had leveraged them out multiple times to get the equity to maintain some kind of consumptive lifestyle. Right. Uh, um, so I, I think that trend, plus the fact that they've never benefited from neoliberalism at all in the way, say, the boomers did – is part of what's driving this hyper reactionary, but not particularly neoliberal trend in conservatism. Mm, mm. Because the other thing that you have to remember about Gen Xers, as far as left projects, Clintonism, Blairism, the Soviet Union collapsing, mm-hmm. Dungism, and no one thinking China was communist anymore. Nobody thinking China was communist anymore. Very recent uh, revision. Right. <laughs> Last uh, four or five years. Right. So. Um, so of course they're right wingers in the main. They might be culturally. It, some of them are culturally left wing, but like, um, there was no viable left project. There's not no. that much of a viable left project now. But you couldn't even lie to yourself about it. Back there then. was the anti WTO stuff. I think we talked about that on our last right. But group. that was easy to turn right wing. Mm-hmm. Like if you as Occupy up, turned out to be too right, it, which it, was mostly millennial, but also Gen Xers too. Right. Well, the, I mean, I think you saw a lot of the Gen Xers that are the people who became the reactionaries that Occupy. And similarly with the ultra-globalization movement, there was a reason why the Gen X left in particular was really susceptible to things like Alex Jones making outreach to them and, and stuff like that. Um, what worries me about our current conspiracy culture, which I see as 
I see comes from three things. One, the complexity of the economic system is beyond ease for most people. I mean, I do think I do think we have to admit that. I don't think it's beyond the average person's capacity to understand, but it's not something you can deliver to them in 15 minute chunks. No, and it's something that that even worse than that, I think, is so mystified by the sort of hangover of, uh, again, this neoliberal regime of accumulation that you have to do a lot of hard work just to get to the to ground zero of trying to get somebody to understand how things work. Two, there are actual conspiracies going on. Yep. Um, so, so that doesn't help, but, but I would say that they're almost never beyond five or 10 people directly involved. And that's like, that's the difference. Um, and three, this extension that we were talking about with social media of identity into what you believe leads people to, I mean, I can tell you this as a person who got ratioed of all things. This is the only thing I've ever been ratioed for. I've been canceled. <laughs> Congrats. Shit. You made but it. I got, I got ratioed for calling someone an idiot for pretending that JFK was somehow super duper lefty and he had some we- weird variation. He had to I, be killed because he was going to upend yeah, the Cold War yeah, consensus. Open, and, and I actually said that like that was structurally identical to a minority view amongst the Birchers that said that JFK had to be killed because while he was a globalist, he repented at the last minute and was going to dismantle it. Um, and, and I said, look, there was inter-elite conflict over how violently to rage the Cold War in mm-hmm. which, in which uh, JFK moved from Murder, Inc. to something slightly less hawkish. But there is no evidence that he was not a Cold Warrior, nor was he even by our standards a progressive. Mm. Like, we tend to think that because of Lyndon Johnson's great society program that JFK was heading in that direction, but there's no evidence for that. There's, mm. there's none. So, I mean, like, you know, JFK's great thing was reducing the marginal tax rate. Like, uh, you know, he's the one who did that, not Eisenhower. So, I mean, in, in some ways he's a proto neoliberal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so why do we care about this? Why do we, because really we care about it because let's be honest, it's a it's a holdover from boomer obsessions that was inflicted into the pop culture, and now we feel like it's reflective of CIA conspiracies. Mm-hmm. But the left understanding of a whole lot of what's going on because they don't want to look at or they don't know how to look at large portions of the world. It's basically been filling the gap with conspiracy thinking, and yeah. and it some of which is kind of justified because of stuff we know about the CIA, yeah. but it gets expanded out to like an entire worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. That sucked up a lot of the air in the room. And obviously, and we talked about this last time too, the, uh, the un- unseemly demise of Bernie Sanders, of course, turbocharges this particular, um, this particular faction, this particular uh, worldview. I think that outside of the left for a second, because we talked about, sort of um conservatives there there was like a um there was a a tense coalition as we know between like um pro-family christian conservatives and then the sort of free market neoliberal uh wing of conservatism and then neoconservative uh warmongers which who were were actually not always like totally free market neoliberals so it was it was a three-way coalition that I, I can tell you as a person who came out of the right, when the left, and particularly the liberal left, would talk about the right is unified, and I'd be like, you just don't know. 
Like you do not know the internal divisions amongst oh, the God. right wing. Yeah, like, inter incredible internal contradictions that it takes a world historical figure like Ronald Reagan in order to overcome, and even that for only what 20, 30 years or whatever. Right, and e and even then, only in retrospect too, because the coalition during Reagan's lifetime was very thin and mostly presided over by a Democratic Congress, so that they didn't have to legislate in any particular way and thus there was no tension to actually break out the different factions within the conservative coalition and so now you're seeing a rise of um uh, national populism you could call it uh, right-wing populism that threatens to become i guess like another part of this coalition maybe even subsume it for all we know the republican party in the next it seems to have subsumed I, you know, I, I've been playing around with this idea that the reason why we're finally seeing the possible reversal of Roe v. Wade, at least at the national level, it won't happen in every state, but um, is because the evangelicals are actually not super relevant anymore. And why not throw them a bone? Because structurally, it makes no sense. This is what I was trying to tell people in the DSA. There is no incentive at all for something that you're super passionate about to be given to you by a politician if it will get you out to vote every two years if you don't get it, right? Yep. And so the evangelical coalition seems to have been subsumed almost entirely by the national populist one, which doesn't really actually... When people talk about the national populist and the Tea Party, I'm like, okay, one, there's there were two Tea Parties. There was the early Tea Party and the late Tea Party. Right. Uh, the late Tea Party was astroturfed. Mm -hmm. um, the early but people make the people make the assumption that the the early one was too, but that was a middle class populist revolt against right. uh, yeah liberalism. And, and actually, and, and against conservative liberalism. Mm -hmm. This is what people don't know: is it was a pro like Occupy was a protest against Obama originally in many ways. Tea Party was a protest against George Bush. Mm. Um. It the, was the not, failures of 2007, 2008. Right. It's astroturfing was immediate upon it becoming something to revitalize what seemed to be a stagnant conservative movement after the failure of Bush um, as a kind of pseudo opposition, which you could pump money into. Which, by the way, structurally, I kind of think the D. I know I'm going to upset some of your listeners, but I kind of think the we're DSA behind the paywall, so, man. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I kind of think the DSA serves the same function. That it that it not in not from its own self understanding. I don't think anyone, even in the worst parts of the MPC, yeah. actually believes that. But what I think the Democrats, and the reason why they were okay with it, and they even threw it bones in 2019 in particular, was that it made it look like there was an actual meaningful internal debate mm -hmm. to the Democrats. And right. so when like the when the far rightists would say like Bernie's control opposition, for example, they are wrong in that it's Bernie wasn't bought out or anything like that, but they are absolutely kind of act, accidentally right that that's the focus and the way that that plus Trump made it safe because you know that if you got Trump over there and we all are telling everybody that he's a fascist, that whether he is or isn't um and i i i'm not comfortable calling trump a fascist but i do I'm think not either, for for complex reasons yeah for, complex yeah. reasons but 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 i will say there are there were fascistic elements and fascistic fascistic 
class alliances within that coalition that is real um and the social basis for it is the same as tradition as uh classical fascism as well yeah it, it's it's the petite bourgeois and a certain faction of rural workers the and which is like kind of the, you know yeah that um so when you look at that uh you 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 realize like oh i i asked michael brooks this to his face once actually um when we were having a conversation and i asked michael like okay let's say you can't turn all the democrats left and you go for the dirty break when are you going to be willing to lose the republicans to do that like when are you when are you going to be willing to lose one election cycle to completely finish off uh, the Democratic Party and he couldn't answer me and I was like which means you'll never do it right.